Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, January 27th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a coalition of women and family advocates campaign for legislation to expand health care access. Then, medical marijuana is now available in some Mississippi dispensaries. But leaders in the industry say a certification backlog is slowing down distribution of the product. Plus, Mississippi's latest tobacco policy rating from the American Lung Association. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm a working mom. I am the sole provider um, of what would have been three healthy babies, two living, uh, one in heaven. Brittany Lampkin was one of a number of advocates on hand at the Capitol yesterday to kick off a legislative campaign for strong babies and healthy moms. Lampkin, who works in corrections, is calling on Mississippi lawmakers to expand health care coverage for mothers and babies. She tells our Kobe Vance she relied on postpartum Medicaid benefits in the weeks after giving birth. But those benefits were gone when she needed them most. For me, the biggest thing was uh, those the medical support, um, those resources, um, specifically speaking to the mental health portion of it. Um, six weeks, you know, out after after I had my my last baby experiencing the trauma of losing her, um, it was really tough having to just go back, get up, you know, put that smile back on, especially in in the the environment that I work in, um, in the correctional setting, you know, and so for me it was it was the the mental health uh, resource. Of it, um, as well as um, having those, having all of those things that I would have not been otherwise able to afford um, on my own, uh, six weeks out of work uh, without pay, trying to make bills, me still trying to provide care to my other children, things that I wouldn't have been otherwise been able to afford at the moment. Um, so. Yeah. It can mean for women like yourself who do work full-time jobs, uh, trying to get by and still need uh, extra help to, you know, make sure their children and your and themselves live healthy lives. Absolutely. So we get up every single day um, and put our best foot forward um, for our children and for the world even um, to be those ideal employees. Um, and so, how much better could we be 
if we had that that extra bit of uh, self care, that that time um, to focus on um, us, to focus on healthy us, healthy babies, to make sure that we are we're fine. How much better could we be for for that workforce, for going out every single day, you know, getting back to it? Absolutely. Is there anything else you'd like to tell Mississippians about your experience or the experience you've heard from others when it comes to the need for postpartum care? Absolutely. Um, moms, women, uh, we, make, we make it happen. Uh, yes, we do, but make sure that you don't feel guilty about uh, taking care of yourself. Always remember that. Always remember to, to make sure that you're okay, and that way... Um, everyone that is that, um, that's under your care and everyone that will come into contact with you, everyone who you make an influence on will be okay as well. Postpartum Medicaid extension is one of the solutions the Black Women's Roundtable is proposing to lawmakers. They are also putting an emphasis on reforming criminal justice policy. Executive Director Cassandra Welchlin explains their priorities. There have been some concerns about some of the legislation that has come out, particularly around the criminal justice issues, by putting more fees and fines, you know, to people who are um, coming out of incarceration. Um, we're also concerned about, you know, some of the issues around the city of Jackson and um, almost trying to create a city within a city. Um, but we also are hopeful. We heard just, um, you know, yesterday the Senate committee did pass out 2212, which is the postpartum bill. And so we're really um, excited to hear that that is coming out and that the Senate is standing very strong again on that issue. Last year we had some issues in the House getting that bill taken up. It was not brought up in the House. Do you think this year might have a better chance now that, especially now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned and Mississippi no longer has access to abortions? I think there is a strong possibility that that bill will come out. It makes no sense that it doesn't, and I think that's a great question again for um, House Speaker Philip Gunn, uh, because uh, we understand that he was the one that you know held it up. But we are confident that he will do the right thing. Um, giving role was overturned. You can't have you know strong babies without their healthy mom. Um, you must have both moms and babies go together, and we're just asking the House to get back to the bond of moms and babies by making sure they pass the House bill. Another big topic this year has been fatherhood and presence in families. We've seen bills that are going to be attacking fathers that are uh, unable to or can't pay their, or, uh, sorry, just unable to pay their child support bills. What do you think that could mean for especially black men in the, in the state of Mississippi or black families? Well, we know that, you know, black men are disenfranchised, you know, in our communities. And, you know, when you think about those harsher penalties and fines, um, that is definitely targeted to um, those, you know, black men. We know that creates problems, right? Because they're getting out of, um, you know, particularly if they're getting out of um, prison, it's really important that we allow opportunity for them to get a job, right, so that they can care for their families. Black men care for their families. And so it is really important that um, they remain in that household for that child um, and that family. And so we support 
um, you know, black men being able to support their own families, and we know that that's what they want to do. It is really important when, I, when we also thinking about, you know, access to health care, you know, too. Um, when that mom dies, that father then has to step in and help take care of that child. And so it's really important that we really make the plan fields, you know, equal, you know, for that, for that father. On health care, postpartum is going to be a big issue this year again. Um, I wanted to go back. I know we just talked about that a moment ago, but what do you think that could mean for families in terms of uh, people who have already given birth and are trying to get their family started? Oh, it just means a lot. It means a lot. It means a lot in the sense that families don't have to worry about whether they can go back to the doctor if something happens. You know, having a baby is stressful enough. Not having all of the tools that you need um, to be able to be um, at your best as a mom um, can be very stressful and add to um, the healthcare crises. And so where we are, you know, right now is, you know, having access to healthcare is just not a mom's issue. It's a family issue. It's a community issue. It's a state issue because all the benefits that we know exist and all the roles that a mom and a woman plays. So it's just going to be huge. Um, and then it's going to lower, we believe, you know, the um, maternal mortality rate, which is what is what we're trying to do by advocating for this bill to pass. Governor Tate Reeves remains a vocal opponent of extending or expanding Medicaid coverage in the state. House leadership says they are unwilling to consider such legislation until they see data that would prove it's effective. Supporters of a postpartum extension say Medicaid benefits to 12 months can help reduce the state's high maternal death rate. 86% of those deaths occur after a baby is born. Coming up, medical marijuana is now available in some Mississippi dispensaries, but leaders in the industry say a certification backlog is slowing down distribution of the product. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi patients finally have access to medical marijuana. A number of dispensaries opened this week, allowing those with certified cards to purchase medicinal products. But some cultivators and patients are claiming they aren't getting answers from the Mississippi Department of Health regarding medical marijuana. According to a report from Mississippi Today, 227 work permit applications were sitting unprocessed, and 995 patients had yet to hear a decision on their dispensary cards. Ken Newberger is executive director of the Mississippi Medical Marijuana Association. He tells our Lacey Alexander what he's hearing from members this week. Some, understandably, they're investing millions of dollars, are, are saying that, you know, while I'm waiting uh, a couple days to get uh, a response, 
you know, plants are growing, right? These are biological uh, organisms that, you know, they might need to, to know how to take care of them or log it um, immediately so that way they can stay compliant. So I've heard uh, a few complaints, um, but for the most part, I've heard people saying that, you know, when they actually interact with the Department of Health, they're very helpful. Um, a, a lot of people who have been able to get them on a Zoom or on, on a phone call say that, you know, very quickly all of their problems get resolved once they actually start engaging with the businesses themselves. In the report, one cultivator was quoted saying that the people appointed to handle the medical marijuana um, regulations and such uh, didn't really know enough about cannabis. Do you think that's true? And if so, do you feel that disconnect is affecting uh, business owners? Um, I, I do think that our regulators are were thrown to the fire in terms of learning about cannabis. Um, I know that they're, they're mostly new at this, and they've relied heavily on experience from other states and regulators in other states, mostly other state health departments, to help guide how they approach this. I, I can't really speak one way or the other of how that's impacted their interactions with businesses, um, just because I've heard so, so many varied reports. Gotcha. And like you said earlier, business owners have invested so much money into this cannabis business. Um, are you hearing any concern from members that they won't make that money back because things are taking a little longer than expected? Yes. Businesses are feeling worried that this has taken a long time, but not really because of the Department of Health in the last year, but because Initiative 65 was filed in 2018. So people were starting to get excited about this in 2018, and it's now 2023. So it's very exciting for me as someone who's been working on this for the, for the past five years. But when you're investing millions and millions of dollars, it is understandably frustrating that it's taking a long time to start seeing a profit. According to the records that were shared with Mississippi Today, uh, 995 patients have yet to be told whether or not they've been approved for their dispensary cards. Um, so from the industry perspective, how does that affect businesses? Does this concern dispensary owners? It's very concerning for dispensary owners, but more so for uh, cultivators because their their timeline on each crop is several months. So they're trying to make a determination of how much to grow relative to the market. So it it's somewhat encouraging to know that there's a large backlog of patients because it shows that, that the demand is there. But because of the heavily regulated nature of this business, until that demand is greenlit, it, it's very concerning. I do think that now that the program is actually seeing sales, we'll see an uptick in patients who are getting their card and also uh, a refocus on approving those patients who are awaiting their final approval. And when you communicate with these members who maybe have concerns, what is your message to those that are worried about slow or inconsistent communication with regulators? I, I always communicate to them that it's your business, so you need to, to make sure that you do everything you can to communicate as often as possible. Um, like I said, I've heard from many businesses that once they start interacting with the Department of Health, it's a very positive experience, and I don't expect that to slow down. I only see that expect that to speed up as the program takes in more money and they hire more staff. And what, in your opinion, do you think needs to be done for these business owners to have an easier or better time opening these dispensaries? I can tell you what I hear from a lot of members, which is they, they just want to be able to get somebody on the phone. Um, I think that that's been the the biggest thing that I hear from dispensaries and, and other business owners is that uh, once they actually start interacting with someone, they feel very comfortable. So if there is if there are more people to 
to talk to them directly, I think that would make them feel very comfortable. Gotcha. Uh, Ken, is there anything else you'd like to add that maybe I forgot to ask you today? Well, I, I just want to – I know that people are kind of focused on you know, the Department of Health and, and the backlog, but I, I think what we really need to be focused on is the fact that sales started this week, and patients have been asking for this really for nearly a decade now. Um, you know, Harper Grace's law passed, uh, I think, in 2014 – which was the first movement towards some kind of medical cannabis with the approval of uh, CBD in, in Mississippi. Uh, and, and now we're seeing you know, full medical marijuana being sold in the state of Mississippi. Um, I, I don't think that there's anything that can overshadow the fact that patients are now receiving relief. Ken Newberger, executive director and founder of Mississippi Medical Marijuana Association, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Coming up, Mississippi's latest tobacco policy rating from the American Lung Association. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The state of Mississippi has been graded poorly in a new report on tobacco policy. The American Lung Association released its 21st annual State of Tobacco Control this week. It grades all of the states in five categories based on legislation and policies in place for tobacco usage. Mississippi received an F grade in each of the categories. Ashley Lyerly is the Senior Director of Advocacy in the Southeast for the Association. She tells our Lacey Alexander what needs to be done to improve the state's grade. I think first and foremost is, you know, ensuring that everyone is protected from exposure to secondhand smoke. So what that really looks like for the state of Mississippi is, um, you know, passing a comprehensive statewide smoke-free air law. You know, we're very fortunate in Mississippi that we've had significant, um, you know, interest at the local level to pass these types of policies. Um, We actually have about 30% of the state's population that's protected by a comprehensive local smoke-free air ordinance, but that still leaves, you know, 70% of the population that could be exposed to secondhand smoke in the workplace and in public places. And I think also just really looking at how much are we spending of our state dollars, our tobacco settlement dollars, and others on um, investing in our programs um, to help people quit smoking, to educate youth and young adults about the dangers of secondhand smoke. And so in Mississippi, we're currently only spending about 27% of the CDC recommended level for investing um, in tobacco prevention and control funding. So you say the grades really haven't changed that much, but has the state adopted legislation or adopted policy that just frankly hasn't worked or have they kind of Do you believe the grades have stayed the same because Mississippi's legislation has stayed the same? Yeah. So, you know, over the last couple of years, we really haven't seen um, a change in, you know, um, in action of policy by state lawmakers that would impact um, a change in the grade. Unfortunately, we've sort of been um, sort of status quo with our tobacco control uh, policies over the last couple of years. And, you know, tobacco, cigarettes, it 
really is an industry. There's money to be made on these products. Um, do you think that that has a hand in why we're maybe not seeing some states take more um, control over the situation? I do. Unfortunately, we know that um, the tobacco industry is um, well-funded um, and that they have great influence over uh, not only state legislative action, but also federal action. Um, you know, we've seen challenges by the tobacco industry, not only on policies that are happening at the federal level, even just related to the FDA's most recent proposal to um, end the sale of menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars. Um, but I do certainly think that that's having, having an impact. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of work that can be done to sort of overcome that, um, because I know that, you know, uh, when we do polling on these types of policy changes, um, we see you know, high support um, across the nation and even in, you know, in states at the local level uh, for these types of policy changes. But also there's a significant benefit um, for enacting these types of policies. If we were to sort of, for example, increase our state tobacco tax if by, say, a dollar or so, we would see a reduction in the number of um, individuals, like a 10% reduction in the number of young adults and youth who are actually um, initiating tobacco use, which ultimately will have an impact on our health care costs as a state. Should you find your way into a legislative building, hypothetically, what are some policies like maybe that tax increase that you would suggest to Mississippi lawmakers at this time? Yeah, I would um, want to sort of advocate for um, strengthening the statewide smoke-free air law um, to include all workers and residents. Um, so passing a comprehensive statewide smoke-free air law that covers bars, restaurants, and gaming establishments, as well as advocating for investment in our tobacco prevention and control program, our funding that we spend as a state. And can you kind of speak to what that tobacco control program does? Yes. So um, there are there's work that's happening across the state at the local level to educate and engage the community around tobacco use and prevention. So, um, you know, this is money that funds our state quit line um, and that is free resources for individuals who are currently tobacco users to um, call and get access to free phone counseling as well as free nicotine replacement therapy. Um, there's also work that's happening in the individual schools um, to educate youth and young adults about the dangers of um, exposure to tobacco use or the use of tobacco. Um, and, you know, that's happening across the state. Um, and I think we need to do more of it so that we can begin to see a reduction in the number of Mississippians who are um, using tobacco. You know, currently we have um, the adult smoking rate is about 19.6%, which is actually higher than the national average. Um, we have seen some trends, at least on the high school smoking rate, some reductions in that, but we still see a very large population, 27.6% of high schoolers who are reporting they're actually using tobacco. So that's just that's cigarettes, that's um, cigars, other smokeless tobacco, including e-cigarettes as well. And we're talking a lot about Mississippi here. Is this kind of a South-wide problem, or do you see other Southern states doing a little bit better? Yeah, so unfortunately, we are seeing the letter grades um, across the Southeast. You know, many of the Southern states are sort of trending um, in the uh, sort of F category, unfortunately. You know, a lot of times we say, thank God for Mississippi and in states like Alabama, but, you know, Alabama and Mississippi are sort of tied. Um, in this regard as related to this report. Um, you know, Louisiana does have a uh, statewide smoke-free air law. Um, it does have some, some loopholes in it, but I think the trend across the Southeast is that, um, you know, we, we have a long way to go um, to impact the tobacco use through, uh, you know, public health policies, tobacco control public health policies. 
Does that have anything to do with maybe tobacco farming being more, you know, accessible in the southeast or something like that? Well, I mean, I'm not sure that there's a, a, a direct correlation with that. I mean, I think there's a lot of factors there, um, but it could be there is obviously investment by the tobacco industry and in multifaceted facets. We just sort of talked a lot about their sort of investment um, in in businesses, but also um, investments in, in lawmakers that they that they make. Um, and certainly we have a high prevalence. Um, we've been targeted for years. Um, the South has um, and, you know, and other individuals, racial and ethnic groups have been targeted by uh, the tobacco industry. And so, you know, we just have to um, kind of overcome that through, you know, implementation of tobacco control policies. Ashley Lyerly, Senior Director of Advocacy for the state of Mississippi and the Southeast in general with the American Lung Association. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thank you so much, Lacey. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.